I'm Jesse Lubinsky. I'm Donnie Piercy. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Heil, hosts of the Partial Credit Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Does the idea of stress actually stress you out? Chances are you weren't taught how to navigate stress, so you've likely been figuring it out as you go. A little meditation here, maybe some breathing exercises, but not knowing how to address the issue can add even more stress. And adults aren't the only ones that experience stress. Oftentimes, children develop adaptive coping skills to manage stress that will follow them into adulthood. These skills may or may not have a healthy long-term impact on general well-being. Whether you're an individual looking for guidance or a family seeking some support, join my friend Lynn at Connect Flow Grow as she launches her two new exciting memberships, Stressless Society and Stressless Family. Through these memberships, Lynn will help you or your family learn how stress affects your lives and healthy ways that you can combat it. To join Lynn's programs, go to my website, stephenmaletto.com, on the front page or go to stephenmaletto.com sponsors Look for the Connect Flow Grow logo and select the class you think will help you the most, either stress less society or stress less family. Get ready to get your stress under control. You know, I've had the good fortune to connect with several representatives from Kitcaster, a podcasting booking agency. They reached out to me on behalf of their clients who want to spread the word about their book, their story, their ideas, their businesses, and so much more. Kitcaster has been such a pleasure to work with, and I always enjoy working with their clients. Now, Kitcaster is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, which is really cool. And, and I got to ask you, have you been wanting to tell your story on podcasts? Podcasts are a great way to grow your personal and business brand. If you're an expert in your field, have a unique story to share or an interesting point of view, it's time to explore the world of podcasting with Kitcaster. Go to kitcaster.com slash TLLK12 or go to my webpage at stephenmaletto.com slash sponsors, click on the KidCaster logo, and apply for a special offer for just the friends of Teaching Learning Leading K-12. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Alex Chevron Vinette, and she is an educator, professional development facilitator, and writer. Today we're focused on her book, Equity-Centered Trauma-Informed Education. So much to learn today. Thanks for listening. And oh, by the way, before you go, it would be so cool if you would go to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews, and uh, rate and review the podcast. Could you do that for me? That would be so cool if you did. Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. Hey, do you need help in becoming more effective at teaching virtual classes? Well, NVTA, the National Virtual Teaching Association, has a semester program that is college accredited and designed to help you become more successful as a virtual teacher. A few of the topics that will be focused on are establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources, among others. NVTA is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, and there's so much there to help you be successful in the virtual classroom. Uh, so take a look. Go to my website, stephenmaletto.com, slash sponsors, find the NVTA logo, and click on it to take you to their website. Happy learning. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Alex Chevron Vanette is an educator, professional development facilitator, and writer. She teaches in-service teachers at Antioch University and Castleton University and undergraduate students at the Community College of Vermont. She's a former teacher leader at an alternative therapeutic school. She lives in Winooski, Vermont. Today, we're focused on Alex's book, Equity-Centered Trauma-Informed Education. Alex, thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Well, I'm glad that you're here. And uh, Alex, before we dive into our topic, let's talk about something I read about you. I, I read that you co-organize EdCamp Vermont and the Trauma-Informed Educators Network Conference. Could you talk about what these events are all about and explain what they worry or, or, or what they are? 
Of course. So, you know, with, with COVID things are different, but I'll tell you the pre and then what we're doing now. So uh, EdCamp Vermont is part of the international EdCamp model, which is an unconference for educators. And so instead of a traditional conference where you show up and there are keynotes and speakers, basically the wisdom in the room is the focus of the conference. So you actually collaboratively create the schedule at the start of the day. Uh, It's a pretty cool experience. If you've never been to one, they happen all over the world. And I believe the website is, if you just put EdCamp into Google, you'll find it. And so EdCamp Vermont is our version of that here in Vermont. And then the Trauma-Informed Educators Network Conference is only in our second year. We had our first year in 2019 in Nashville. Uh, Matthew Portel is kind of the lead organizer of that. He's a principal down there in Nashville. And we canceled in 2020, obviously. And this year we're doing an online version, but hopefully back to Nashville soon. And the goal of that conference is to be a learning experience that is about trauma-informed education, but also is a trauma-informed experience. So we really focus on connections, small group, taking care of yourself. Uh, It's a really fabulous experience. And I'm excited for when we can gather in person again. Very cool. And I, I'm very familiar with Ed Camps. And uh, and I thought it was neat that uh, you had that in your background that you're doing. And obviously, you know, COVID has interfered with both those events there. Um, but uh, it sounds like you're looking forward to getting back on, on track with those. Uh, uh, the uh, And so right now with the uh, Trauma-Informed Educators Network Conference, is that, uh, I mean, are you, are you guys starting to make plans for when you might come back as well as the Ed Camp? Yeah, so the the Trauma-Informed Educators Network Conference, we're online this year and we still have registration spaces open. If if anyone's not too sick of Zoom, you can join <laughs> us this summer. And then uh, as of right now, I believe we are planning to be back in person 2022, but nothing concrete yet. Very cool, very so cool. Stay, stay tuned. <laughs> awesome, thanks for sharing that. So you began your career teaching English at an alternative therapeutic school, and I understand you went on to become a leader at the school as well. Um, let's talk about that for just a minute. If you were to name one major lesson that impacted you while working at the school, what would it be? It's hard to pick just one, and for <laughs> those who pick up my book, you'll see that about a million lessons uh, come through in that book that I took from that school, but one that I'm thinking about today is that uh, my mentor there used to tell us, you can set the table, but you can't make them eat, <laughs> and she would also say, um, if your students had a bad day, that doesn't mean that you had a bad day, and with both of those things, what she was trying to tell us was Um, your value is not contingent on whether your students achieved in a certain way or behaved in a certain way. And that all you can really do is the best that you can do. Um, And it really helped me to not take it too personally if things didn't go right. And also just let go a little bit of perfectionism and, and trying to control things and instead really just focus on setting the table and hoping that it would be something students wanted to to eat. <laughs> very cool, very cool. Yeah, you, you you do talk about a lot of the lessons that you learn. That's why I was curious. Just what are the things that might just really be one that you always just kind of it's just there. <laughs> well, good stuff. The uh, um, so. One of the things that I want to make sure that uh, we do here is that we're going to be talking about your book, Equity-Centered Trauma-Informed Education. Uh, Before we do that, could you explain what you mean by trauma and what equity-centered trauma-informed education is? Absolutely. So trauma is a hard concept to really define because there's so many fields of study that contribute to how we understand trauma. And so I try to give a concise definition, which is that trauma can be an individual and or collective response to a life-threatening event or stressful conditions or a persistent dangerous environment. So what I'm trying to capture there is that trauma is a response that we have. It's not the event itself. And it's basically that feeling of 
you feel so unsafe or threatened either by a one-time big event or by the conditions in which you live or work or go to school that your mind and your body respond by trying to keep you safe. And sometimes those responses can interfere with your day-to-day life or just mean that you have some healing to do and you need support. And so with that in mind, equity-centered trauma-informed education is the idea that we want to be informed by trauma. It's right there in the the name, of course, Um, in understanding that people in school, so students, the adults in school, the community members, we all are impacted by trauma in different ways and schools can be responsive to that and schools can also help prevent trauma and that we center that work in equity. And, you know, a lot of schools are doing equity work these days, and they're also doing trauma-informed work, and they are approaching them separately, right? We have our equity professional development, we have our trauma-informed professional development, and they're seen as kind of different areas. And to me, they're really one and the same, because a lot of the same stuff that causes inequity also causes trauma. And a lot of the fixes for equity issue are also fixes for issues connected to trauma in schools. And so, I'm really just trying to bring those together and say, let's wrap this work all up together and we're going to see the impact on both of those areas. I appreciate it because that's uh, um, just want to make sure that uh, everyone kind of understands what we're talking about um, and what your um, definitions are of these things and such. So good stuff. I got to ask you, Alex, I mean, what inspired you to write equity centered trauma informed education? I was inspired to write this book because I've been involved in the trauma-informed education movement for a while and really started my understanding of trauma-informed education at my old school where it was the way that we did things. And then I started getting more involved in going to conferences about trauma-informed education and reading a ton of other people's books about trauma-informed education and engaging with a lot of people on the topic. And I just started to notice that there were some themes in the way that some people were talking about trauma-informed education that were kind of concerning to me. One of the biggest ones being this tendency to use trauma almost as an explanation for having lower expectations for a certain group of kids or for kind of reinforcing deficit views of certain kids, you know, by saying, oh, well, that kid has experienced trauma, so of course they're struggling, as opposed to saying, oh, that kid is experiencing trauma, we need to do more to support that kid. And so I just wanted to write this book a little bit as a course correction almost, and not to say that, you know, my way of looking at this is is the way of looking at this or anything like that, um, but really I tried to pull together so many of the different brilliant thinkers and authors and educators that I've learned from and put it all together in this book so others can kind of see through this perspective that is more strengths-based and is more looking at trauma from a bigger systems lens as opposed to just an individual lens. Gotcha. The, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to know where writers, because you, you actually, I mean, your book is published, it's produced, it's out there. And so, you know, it went from idea to the actual physical copy that's published and out, out there for purchase now and and using. So um, it's always interesting to know where that original idea comes from because you have to be able to stick with it, which is which is really cool. So uh, good stuff. I, you know, in the introduction of your book, Equity Centered Trauma-Informed Education, you tell a story about your mother. During this story, you say this, when my mother was in school, the prevailing wisdom about child trauma was, kids are resilient, they'll get over it. Could you talk about this? Yes. So in the introduction to the book, I share about my mother who had some challenges uh, in her family growing up that I would categorize as as trauma. And she, she talked about her teachers sort of ignoring it. And she had some neighbors who were helpful, but people just didn't really ask about it. They didn't really talk to her about it. And this is a pretty common experience then, but also today, that people sort of look at kids and they go, well, this hard thing is going on, but but kids are just resilient. They'll bounce back. It's fine. But the research about trauma shows that 
that's only partially true. You know, the, the thing that is true is that kids are resilient, humans are resilient, and we have an incredible capacity to survive and heal. Um, but the part that's not exactly true is the idea that kids are somehow too young to understand or it's not going to impact them. And there's a great body of research that shows that people can be impacted their entire life by trauma experienced in childhood. And so it's this sort of... Uh, you sort of have to hold two things at the same time. One being that we can't operate from a mindset of pity or thinking that if something happens to you in childhood, your whole life is ruined. That's not true, of course. People who experience trauma live wonderful lives um, uh, or they can live wonderful lives, right? If they have support, if they have access to resources, people have the innate capacity to heal. And at the same time, we have to recognize that we can't just leave children to deal with stuff on their own because you can't just heal completely by yourself with no one around you to support you. You need that supportive community. You need resources. And so we have to kind of recognize both things at the same time. Gotcha. Gotcha. The, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I think that uh, there's, there's so much of this that just hits home when you read this part, no matter who you are, you know, there's any number of things that uh, could, uh, you know, drastically impact you. you know, if you're, and they, a lot of times people just don't realize what might be going on. And I, I have this cool thing that happened. My my parents got divorced when I was eight years old. And, you know, one day you got one thing happening and then the next day you got another thing happening. And that led to all kinds of other things, all right? And the, uh, um, and uh, it was cool because a bus driver, I, mean, I don't think any of my teachers knew about all this stuff going on, but the, uh, but the bus driver, he said, what, he, he asked me one day when I got on the bus, he said, why is it on sometimes on Mondays, you're really late? <laughs> and I, and I said, hey, I'm literally running up. He could see me being dropped off. And I told him, I said, you know, I said, you know, my parents are divorced and, and, uh, the times that you see me late, that's, that's my dad bringing me to the bus stop. <laughs> um, cause I stayed with him for the weekend. And, um, and he said, uh, he said, okay, and what's neat is that he had a conversation. So he noticed that I was going through this this mess and it was the coolest thing because he, he had a little chat with my dad about uh, trying to be better on, about being on time, but that if, um, that he would, he would give a few, you know, a little leeway in there and wait on me just mm -hmm. to make sure that I was gonna be there. And I, was a, I look back on it now and then it was a lifesaver because there were days when, <laughs> without telling the whole story i mean it's just things like you know the, the arguments and the yelling and things that would happen as a result um of mm -hmm. of this you know he just put a complete into it simply by mm -hmm. noticing something and that's yes. what that whole area got into that i was just i wanted to tell that story just to kind of get you to talk about that i think uh yeah and that, I mean, that's such a common experience that adults will reflect on that they were going through a hard time as a kid and there was one person who noticed. And sometimes it is like in your case, the bus driver, the person in the cafeteria, the coach. Um, and what's beautiful about that is that sometimes it just takes one person to notice and to extend that little piece of flexibility but on the other hand, I wish that all adults who went through something hard as a kid had the experience that it wasn't just one person, right? That the bus driver noticed, but maybe also your teacher noticed and your neighbor and all kinds of people said, hey, Stephen, how are you really doing, right? So, so my dream is that we build on the fact that there are amazing caring adults, right? Those adults already exist, but then we really build more connectivity, right? We build connectivity so that we're a, a networked caring community. So kids aren't just relying on this one person happen to notice. It makes a lot of sense. And I, I, you know, that's, uh, that's something that just rings so real. I mean, as, as a, I have several of these types of stories that impacted me as a principal so that when I became a principal, it really, and there's lots of things that impacted me in making those decisions as I got to the point of being a high school principal. But, you know, things like just it, literally in the counseling office, you make sure that um, they understand which families are just completely, especially if there's a divorce decree that basically says this one can see this one at this time, this one can see that one at this time, this one gets access to paperwork, this one doesn't, you know, that type of thing. And so you don't end up creating more trauma because you didn't follow, you know, you didn't even mm -hmm. know. And 
you know, that's something that then when the teachers recognize that too, you know, it's just like you said, it's, it's nice to know that it, it would be nice to have lots of people recognize so that they're, they're, they're more aware so that when you come in on a, on a Monday where things may have been a little rough on the, week, <laughs> the weekend or even just during the week. I mean, it's like, I've had kids who they do anything they could to stay at school as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and something I, you know, something I mentioned in the book is that it doesn't require you to be what I call a trauma detective, right? You, <laughs> you don't have to, get all up in your kid's business. You don't have to know exactly what's going on, but sometimes it's just about slowing down enough to ask those questions about, Hey, I notice on Mondays you seem kind of stressed or, Hey, how's it going today? And it it honestly has been surprising to me. Sometimes, you know, I go into different schools as a consultant and sometimes just observing kids moving through their day, they can go an entire day with no one actually asking them how they're doing And I think that that's not intentional on the part of teachers, right? Teachers are so overwhelmed. We have so many students coming through. Of course, it's hard to slow down and go, how do I ask every kid? But, you know, even just building in things like a class check-in or advisory or a lot of the structures you can use to just make sure that every kid is having some point of contact during the day. So it doesn't need to be rocket science, you know, which is what gets me excited about trauma-informed education is that some parts of it are going to be really difficult and hard to make change. And some parts of it are not going to take a huge culture shift to make a really big difference. Good points. I mean, this is, uh, you know, you got me thinking about all, as I was reading your book and, uh, and the, this conversation itself is bringing lots of thoughts about stuff. And it's just like, you know, do you think there's something wrong if, and you, it's four o'clock school got out at three fifteen, and there's a child sitting in the hallway with, with a friend and they're both crying, you know, nah, there might be something that you need to talk about, <laughs> you know, Hey, can I help you with something instead of walking the other way? Um, you know, or, uh, you know, just any number of things you've made me start thinking about that uh, um, are out there as issues that uh, sometimes the adults, you know, it, you, know you don't know how much longer this is, this is going to add to your days. It's going to add, and you got to stop and care. I, I used to tell adults that one of the things that, you know, as a teacher and an administrator, you know, people tell you that one of the keys to working with kids is building relationships. And, and a lot of times when you, have this type of conversation, you know, I, I, I tell them, I say, you know, kids really think they know what you get paid to do. And when they see you act outside of what they think you get paid to do, that's where the connectivity is going to happen. And it's taking, you know, stepping outside your box and like, you know, it's four o'clock on a, on a Friday and uh, you have this event happening and you stop and say, Hey, what can I do to help you? What's going on? Mm-hmm. And, And something that I think is really important in order for individual teachers or administrators to be able to do that is that you have to have systems of support. So something I talk about a lot is the idea that equity-centered trauma-informed education is a systemic change. And an example of that would be, you know, you see the two kids crying in the hallway at four o'clock. If you as a teacher feel like you're completely alone in this, then you might have that moment of, I'm supposed to get home and pick up my kid or start making dinner. I don't have time to stop. I don't know who to call. And, you know, some teachers might reasonably say, I I can't support this right now. I'm all by myself in this. But if you have systems of support in your school, if it's really clear, who do I call? Who's there for me when I notice that a kid is struggling? If I hear something after hours, what is the procedure? Um, who else is available in our community? Do we have strong connections, for example, between our school and the local mental health nonprofit that has a an after hours crisis line? Um, do they have a waiting list? You know, there's all these kind of bigger issues where if if schools are kind of really prioritizing that we support student mental health and we're going to make sure that all this stuff is really clear, then that teacher see the, sees these kids and she thinks, okay, well, I, I really need to go pick up my kid from daycare, but I know exactly who I'm going to tap in. I know exactly who can come support these kids. 
and it's not all on my shoulders. So you have to make those systems changes as well as the individual teacher cares and, and notices. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, you know, uh, before I leave the introduction, in the introduction, you have a segment titled Trauma-Informed Education, a healing force or a buzzword. Um, talk about what you mean and why you included this, because it's just a little short you know, topic that you have, but you took time to, to put it in the book. So. <laughs> yes, I think that a lot of uh, a lot of education trends can become buzzwords really fast if you just kind of get the you know, the 30 minute professional development, and then you never talk about it again in school. And um, uh, something folks might not know about the book, if you're just hearing about it, is that it's the first in a series that is edited by Paul Gorski and Cheryl Matias, who are two fantastic equity scholars and leaders. And uh, when I was talking to Paul about uh, my book proposal as part of the series, one of the things he was really interested in was exploring different education trends that he calls the shiny new thing and looking at them through an equity lens. So trauma-informed education, social emotional learning, project-based learning, you know, all these things that maybe if you're a teacher, your eyes are rolling a little bit because you hear these things, you see a bunch of articles and then you learn about it and it goes away. And so to me, I think trauma-informed education has reached this popularity where it could become a buzzword if we just allow it to be a passing trend, but it can really be a transformative healing force. It can be something that fundamentally shifts the way we do school. And part of my mission is to try to ensure that that's what it is. Very cool. Very cool. The, uh, and it's, you know, it is interesting, uh, um, because what you were saying just a second ago, sometimes the worst thing ever is that the principal goes to a conference. And yeah. <laughs> yes. And they're like, oh, my gosh. She went to a conference this weekend. He went to a conference this weekend. We're, what's what's going to happen next week? <laughs> Please, nothing new. Uh, so understand the, the direction there. Uh, so... Uh, Alex, you have a six principle framework that drives equity centered trauma informed education. Could you share a little bit about these six principles and maybe we'll talk about a couple of them in a little more detail? Yes. So I developed these principles because to me, they're sort of a way of looking at the big picture and sort of, you know, when I'm making decisions about, okay, well, how do I organize my classroom or do this systems change? What are the things I can keep going back to? So here's the six principles. The first is that equity-centered trauma-informed education is anti-racist and anti-oppression because racism and oppression cause inequity and they cause trauma. And so schools have to take up anti-racist and anti-oppressive frameworks and education as part of their work. The second principle is that it is asset-based. So like I mentioned before, looking at inequities in schools and looking at trauma isn't about finding deficits in certain kids or saying, oh, there's, there's an achievement gap or these certain kids are falling behind, but instead looking at the inherent strength and capacity of every kid and every adult in the school and in the community and working from those strengths. So in, a, in an asset-based environment, we look at trauma as something that is in need of care and support, but isn't a sign of weakness or isn't something negative about you. The third principle is systems-oriented, like I was just mentioning, that we're trying to implement equity and trauma-informed work on a systems level and really embedding it in policies in schools and shifting the way that schools operate because the alternative to that is when we sometimes just ask individual teachers to take work into their practice. And that's great, but those individual teachers are going to turn over at some point, right? They're going to, um, you know, uh, go on. And so to really embed equity-centered trauma-informed education, it has to be in the systems. The fourth principle is being human-centered. So this is about always returning to our shared humanity at the end of the day, because dehumanization causes inequities and trauma is dehumanizing and dehumanization causes trauma. Uh, and so 
when in doubt, always return to as a person, what do I do in this situation? The fifth principle is universal and proactive. So the idea is that we don't wait until after a crisis to implement trauma-informed education. We don't wait until after something happens around equity in the school. You know, we don't wait until after there's a racist incident or until we notice the, the gaps between you know, gender enrollment in AP classes, you don't wait until after you notice that stuff, you take it up proactively. Um, and, and the universal aspect is you don't apply these things just to certain kids. It's about everybody. And the final principle is social justice focused. And the meaning behind that is the idea that Ideally, in trauma-informed education and equity-centered education, the goal is to have a more equitable and less traumatic world. And that's like a really big, <laughs> that's a really big goal. Um, but to me, you really have to have that goal in mind and say to yourself, if that's my goal, how does that change what I do in the classroom or in the school today? So how are the decisions that I'm making in line with that really big goal? So my hope is that when people engage with these principles, they'll really apply them to um, their own ways of being in school, the way that their school takes up their own mission or, or vision statement, and look at how could these principles inform the work that we're doing there. Gotcha. Very, very, very cool. I appreciate you explaining them all because that's the focus of uh, your, your book and uh, um, what you're trying to get people to, to think about and such. Uh, you, you know, what? Uh, um, one of the things I want to ask is one of the keys in the principles is that, you note the ultimate goal of trauma-informed education is to not need trauma-informed education. Could you explain what you mean? Yeah, so this is that really big picture um, and the idea of you know, to me, part of trauma-informed education is not just responding to the fact that kids have experienced trauma, right? Okay, little, you know, little Sally experienced trauma outside of school. She comes into school, she's impacted by the trauma, and so we're responsive to her and create a, you know, caring environment for her. That's a big part of trauma-informed education. But another part of trauma-informed education is disrupting and preventing trauma. So for example, we know that some kids who don't experience trauma other places in their life experience trauma in school. So for example, they might experience bullying, they might experience harassment, they might experience curriculum that misrepresents part of who they are and makes them feel not recognized or safe in school. And so we can change the things in school that might cause that really stressful environment for kids and that's preventing trauma. And we can also support kids to become people who can disrupt trauma when they go out in the world. So for example, a lot of schools will do things about um, bystander intervention or speaking up against hate. And when you do that, you're training kids, you're helping them build the skills so that they are lessening trauma in the world by disrupting it and, and, you know, being a good person out in the world. And so the really, you know, big end goal here would be if we really all did this, right. If we really all committed to this on all cylinders, then there would be no trauma in the whole world. <laughs> and, and we wouldn't need trauma informed education. Now, of course, like I said before, that's a huge goal. Um, but, but, it's, I think to me, it's really inspirational to try to work toward that goal. Excellent. Yeah, that's, and it definitely is. I think it's a, it's a great goal to have. I mean, you know, one of the schools where I was a principal was, uh, um, they had, uh, we had to get the gangs under control first, um, before you could really focus on academics. It was a very high need school and community. And, and, uh, you know, one of the things, it took us about three years, but I mean, when you saw in the beginning, some of the things kids had to deal with, like, when it's not safe to walk through certain areas on the way to and from school and, and, uh, things like, uh, you know, making sure that areas of the building are covered as you're going after and trying to identify to put the violence down. And that's, that's one of those things that, you know, kitchen have to worry about if they're in the wrong mm -hmm. place at the wrong time in the building, <laughs> that's crazy. And any number of stuff like that, that you made me think of as I'm reading, reading through that area because yeah the, the nice thing is in, in that school like when we start having success against 
in, in dealing with uh, you know, getting kids out of gangs and getting them the violence severely dropping. Um, then you also start seeing the focus on academics starting to really kind of skyrocket. And also the trust that they had of the adults in the building, which was cool. And you could tell that, you know, those went hand in hand as they realize that you're able to do what you said you tried and do. And, uh, and then they're able to do some of the other stuff that they really would like to be focused on instead of, you know, worrying about, like I said, what's going to happen next around the corner. Mm -hmm. That, and that's a great example because you're not just saying, Oh, well, these gangs exist. We can't do anything about it. So we're just going to try to be, be more responsive inside school. Instead, you're really looking at how can we be part of the solution so that this, this amount of trauma is really lessening in the community. And I, I think that's so cool what you're talking about there. Cause I've actually lived that where you've seen it. And uh, the, the response is just amazing how as they see that you being successful and pursuing it, even if you even if you fail miserably as you're, as you're trying to deal with it, um, the response is quite, uh, quite incredible as more people start getting interested in being involved in the school. And I'm talking about adults, the parents and such who, who don't necessarily speak uh, enough English or whatever to, you know, that might be afraid, start reaching out a little bit as you reach out more to them, too. I mean, there's any number of things that happen as a result of you gaining trust. So. Uh, good stuff. The, uh, you know, part of your frame, framework are four shifts that are needed. Shift from a re reactive stance, shift from a savior mentality, shift from seeing trauma-informed practices as the responsibility of teachers, and shift from focusing on only on how trauma affects our classroom. Could you talk about these? Yeah, so those shifts really make up the bulk of the book, and each of them kind of talks about one of these areas that if you're only really doing kind of the buzzword version of trauma-informed education, you might think that that's kind of the start and end of it. And then what I'm offering is some ways to sort of realign and really bring in that equity focus. So as an example, I'll just pick one of them. Um, one would be that that shift from the reactive stance. So that's the connection to the universal and proactive aspect of equity center trauma-informed education. And so this is that shift from, you know, some schools will say, oh, we're trauma-informed because we identify which kids have experienced trauma and then we accommodate them or we give them some special support. But the thing is that we can't actually know who's experiencing trauma. You know, a lot of kids do not share what's going on for them. A lot of kids don't recognize that what is happening for them is not okay or that it's really stressful. Um, some kids will have been told by the adults in their life not to share anything. I mean, there's really all kinds of reasons you just don't know what's going on for kids. And so if we're only giving extra support and you know, interventions or whatever to certain kids that we say, oh, well, that kid's going through trauma, then I don't know if we're really doing trauma-informed education because you're missing a bunch of kids who might need it. And so what I recommend to teachers and school leaders is that they shift from asking which are the kids who've experienced trauma, and instead they say, how is trauma present in our school? So really, how does it show up across our student body uh, how does it show up for our teachers? Is there trauma that kind of lives in our community? You know, for example, some schools have gone through a traumatic event as a school community in past years, and it still influences the way that the school community and culture operates. What's in the neighborhood? What's in our state? What's going on in current events? So really looking at all these different layers and then figuring out the practices that will help all students and teachers and community members, everybody all together, create a connected and healing environment. So that's just one of the shifts and the other really look at things like that to, to sort of look at what's a place where we could get off track a little bit and then how can we really ground this in equity so that we are moving forward with that in mind. That's excellent. I mean, I, I you know, the, the more you read, the more you get, uh, if you're paying attention in your world where you work, you you're going to get it um, to to seeing the different ways these these uh, shifts are going to materialize. Um, one of the ones that you know, just the savior mentality alone was intriguing, and so I kind of went there first. <laughs> As a side <laughs> note, 
Did you want to say anything about where that came from? Yes. So the savior mentality is this idea that sometimes when we look at trauma-informed education, it becomes this way of saying, oh, these these poor damaged kids, they need trauma-informed education to pick them up out of their horrible lives. And, uh, and sometimes it is stated actually that plainly in some trauma-informed texts, and sometimes it's more of a, a subtext or implication. And it's this sort of idea that people have where they're almost blaming students' families or their communities. Um, they're just using this deficit mindset that, um, oh, well, these, these certain kids have trauma and, and it's our job as teachers to turn their lives around. And so what I offer instead is that, you know, going to that humanization principle, when you position yourself as the savior who's going to lift someone out, out of their horrible lives, then you are dehumanizing them, right? You're denying their full humanity. And you're also denying your full humanity because there's not really such a thing as a dichotomy. Um, and, and this is a concept I'm borrowing from a fantastic scholar named Dr. Elizabeth Dutro. She talks about there's not a true dichotomy between the, the traumatized kid and the non-traumatized adult, right? We are all people who live in a society in which we are touched by trauma in some way. And I think during the past year and a half with COVID, that is extremely clear, right? That even if you personally have been lucky enough to not have experienced anything traumatic in the past year and a half, you know that the collective, right, communally, we've all gone through a collective trauma. You can really see how everybody can be impacted no matter who you are. And so I really encourage teachers to interrogate their reasons for being interested in trauma-informed education and making sure that it's not just reinforcing some idea that you have that certain kids are damaged or anything like that. And instead take that universal humanistic approach of this is something that impacts all of us. And so I'm not going to be a savior. I'm not going to fix anybody. I'm not going to rescue anybody. I'm going to be a support and I'm going to be one member of that community. And kind of going back to that story about your bus driver, right? Um, that bus driver was not saying, oh, I'm going to take Steven and I'm going to lift him out of his terrible life and and fix everything that's wrong right he was just looking at from from his role right he had one specific thing he could do to make your life a little easier he could just not drive away as fast when you came out a little late and the important thing i think you said that he did as well was that he got in touch with your family and he said i noticed that you're having a hard time here's what i'm going to do to support you he offered that way of increasing the connections between the adults around you and i think that's just a really beautiful goal is thinking about not how can i be the one and only savior but how can i make more connections you know i just have this image of a web right you're making all these connections between the different points in the web and that web serves to support the student that's in the middle that's awesome. That's uh, that's cool what you're just talking about with the bus driver again, because <laughs> I mean, he 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 really just he uh, um, made it work without being too imposing. And, uh, and like you said, that's pretty much uh, what he did was he'd make sure he didn't drive away as quickly as he should. You know, probably should have <laughs> on those days when I wasn't there yet. So um, and boy, did he make my life a lot easier. But my father got the message, too. He, he'd do a lot better job of getting me there. So it was cool. <laughs> um, very good. Yeah, I, 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 I like those shifts. I mean, because I think they, they make a lot of sense. And you can see where the different ways we can get into the opposite of, you know, what we why we have to shift out of those things, I guess, is my point. And um, excellent. The, you know, in Chapter 9, I got to talk about this before we finish up. You have this great chapter that's called Support Teacher Wellness. And you note this, supporting trauma-affected children while you manage your own trauma is incredibly difficult, yet this is the day-to-day -day experience of many educators. Let's talk about this. So I wrote that before COVID and- Even more ooh, interesting. <laughs> is, it, is it true now? Um, and really of all the daily classroom teachers that I talk to, this is just real life right now that they are going through their own traumas. They're going through their own hardships. Some, some of those traumas directly caused by their working conditions, right? Um, 
uh, you know, teachers who have had to relearn how to teach, who have to have the kids in the room and the kids on Zoom and and they're stressed out. They're worried about being well and all of that on top of anything that's going on in your particular personal life, which folks have a lot going on. And so that goes back to that idea about the dichotomy, the false dichotomy, right? That if we talk about trauma and kids, we have to talk about trauma and adults because trauma-informed teachers need a trauma-informed workplace. They need their school to be somewhere where there are universal and proactive supports for them, where they are treated as humans, uh, where, where they are engaged in systemic changes that make their lives better, the same way we're applying things to students. And so one of the things I say in the book is, right, just turn back to the first part of the book and read the whole thing and replace students with teachers and you'll get all of my recommendations. Basically anything we're doing for students, see if there's a way you can do the same type of support for teachers as well. And I, I hope that school leaders will pick the book up and, and really start to look at how they can make some of those shifts. Very cool. Very cool. And that's a very powerful chapter, by the way, just to, because you, you know, a lot of times you ask a lot of teachers and a lot of times you forget, and especially, you know, the ones that are really scary are the ones who don't let you know that, you know, they're really, you know, they're the, what's that uh, 2080 rule or, you know, you got this, this group of teachers that are always there that want to help with things. And they often really are the group that really gets overlooked because they're shouldering a lot of stuff and they're helping in a lot yeah. of different places and doing this and that. And then you find out that some of them are really now, they've stressed themselves out so much. That uh, you know they've they're eating dinner at ten o'clock at night and they're uh, they got papers backed up a mile and uh, there's any number of other things happening and uh, you're gonna end up losing yourself a few good teachers there that way if you don't have some way of knowing what's going on or support for that I guess it's really my point. Mm -hmm. So great stuff. The uh, it, um, you know Alex, one of the things I need you to do because we're finishing up here is I need you to take a minute to explain what unconditionallearning.org is. Yes. So unconditionallearning.org is my website and it started out as a blog and I still blog on there. Although in, in finishing up my book, um, there's a little <laughs> less on there in the past couple months, but I, I'm getting back to it soon. And I, I just blog about different rotating topics in education and, and uh, you know, recently wrote about, recognizing the anniversary of collective trauma as we passed a year since COVID began in the United States. Um, I have a post on there about PBIS and some of the problems with it, which is an exciting topic that people like to argue with me about on the, on the internet. Um, so I have, I have a, a whole archive of blog posts and then I have just some information about how to connect with me and, and my work and my book um, and invite anyone to, to send me a message through there if they want. Very cool. Very cool. The, uh, and it's a great website. looks awesome. And I've gone through and looked at the different stuff and uh, you got some you know, great blog articles and, uh, and uh, I'd love to hear, <laughs> maybe once we finish recording, you can tell me about the ones that people argue with you a lot about, but the, uh, you know, it's uh, good stuff. And I think anyone would understand if there's a little gap in the space as you're finishing up a yes. book. So um, good stuff. The, uh, um, the, the website makes it seem like, do you do consulting? I do. I do consulting and I do um, uh, workshops for schools. And then I also do, you know, I started doing this during COVID and I'm hoping to continue for as long as people will come to it. But I've started doing workshops on Zoom just for any teacher who wants to come. And I have always done them with a pay what you can model. And so just really affordable and accessible for teachers. And again, I do kind of rotating topics. Uh, this summer, I'm doing a series on the trauma-informed classroom. And so I also have a, there's a section on the website that lists all my upcoming events and workshops. And I just try to make those as accessible as possible for folks. Excellent. So uh, good stuff. So everyone, I'll have that in the in the show notes. And uh, But it's unconditionallearning.org. And uh, great, great information there. And Alex, before we close, if someone wanted to connect with you or learn more, um, is there some other place you want them to go to? Or is it just that website? You can go on the website. And then I also am on Twitter a lot. <laughs> and that's uh, Alex S. Vinette on Twitter. I also have an Instagram, which is unconditional learning. And you can contact me any of those places. 
Excellent. And I'll have them in the show notes so that people can find them um, quite easily. So uh, last two questions, which are questions I like to ask my guests. And the first one goes like this. How do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? (laughs) That's a great question after this past year and a half. Um, I have two answers. One is that I lean on my community. So I definitely have amazing people around me and uh, different people who support my work and my personal life and just great friends and colleagues. And so I will turn to them and I'm very grateful for them. And then the other piece is boundaries, because sometimes when you just want to quit, it's actually a sign that you should quit. <laughs> you should quit certain things, right? Not quit altogether. But um, when I when things are overwhelming, maybe sometimes I go, oh, I need to take something off my plate that actually is not bringing any joy or value to me. And so leaning on that community, sometimes just evaluating what is it that I can take off my plate that will make me have more energy and more focus for the things that mean a lot to me. Love that. It's great, great advice. Um, great advice. I, I like the idea about, you know, sometimes you do, you have to go, yeah, this one needs to go. <laughs> um, and my stress will hopefully, hopefully go away with that. Um, and last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say, thank you? So this is a great question because, I mean, of course, of many, many teachers who have been important to me, but I've been thinking a lot lately about my senior year creative writing teacher, Megan Chambers, and I actually recently tried to find her contact information online. I can't find it. So on the off chance you're listening, Miss Chambers, <laughs> um, she just meant so much to me in believing about my writing ability and my um, my potential as a writer, she kind of went out of her way to support my engagement with with literature. I remember one time she got me tickets to um, to a book event and signing of an author I really loved that I wanted to go to, but they were sold out and and just those little extra things. And then also just providing amazing feedback and connecting me with the right book at the right time. So I'm very grateful for her and maybe this will somehow find her, find its way to her ears. Excellent. And ho- hopefully that'll be cool if it, uh, it, if it does and she gets to hear your, your kind words. So good stuff. Hey, Alex, thanks so much for talking with me today about your book, Equity Centered Trauma-Informed Education. You have a great focus and excellent ideas and I wish you the best in all you do. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts, Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.